Welcome to Film Quotes Film. My name is Omaya Jones, and each month we host the Arkansas Times screening series, which takes place at the Riverdale 10 VIP Cinema. On this episode, Michael, Alice, and myself are joined by Kendris Jones, and we discuss our February screening of Julie Dash's 1991 film, Daughters of the Dust. We were really happy to be able to screen this film, and it took a while to put this podcast together. Uh, so sit back and enjoy, and you'll hear from me on the other side. I am the first and the last. I am the honored one and the scorned one. I am the whore and the holy one. I am the wife and the virgin. I am the barren one. And many are my daughters. I am the silence that you cannot understand. I am the utterance of my name. So, today we're going to talk about Julie Dash's Daughters of the Dust from 1991. And so, Michael and Allison, for you two, this was the first time seeing this film, correct? Yes. Yes. And Kendra's had seen it before. Yeah, I'd seen it one time before. No, I'll take that back. I said one time, but I've actually seen it. This that would have been my third time seeing it. I actually watched it last some of it last summer, and then I watched it for the first time like in 2010 or something like that. One of the reasons this film is on our radar is that it was just recently restored. Um, well, I guess to back up a little bit, I, they were under they're in, engaged in the process of restoring it. And, uh-huh. then, and then it sort of also got attention because of Beyonce's Lemonade. And uh-huh. there were um, lots of pieces about that were comparing aspects of Lemonade to Daughters of the Dust. And so we were fortunate enough to be able to screen the restored version in February. Had, do, you, do you remember what it looked like the first time you saw it? Or is this or is that not really something you were paying attention to? Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, the first time I saw it... Um... It, it looked to me pretty much the same. Um, the as far as like, as I was saying earlier, I'm not a film person. As far as, the res, as, as, far as restoring that particular film, I'm wondering exactly how much would be altered mm-hmm. if you know. Because I think from what I know about the film. Um, Arthur Jaffai and um, Julie Dash had a very, very particular um, idea about, and like any filmmaker would, would have a very particular idea regarding how they wanted the film to look. Mm -hmm. And um, so I don't know, you know, if in a restoration they wanted to necessarily clean it up, so to speak. I wouldn't think that they would want that because... From what I understand about Julie Dash, and and you might get this get into this later as far as her being part of the L.A. Rebellion um, movement, I don't know how much they or she would want, you know, the the film to be altered right. <laughs> for for a for a current audience. Cause, right. So yeah. Well, I was just saying, just so people who, for people who don't know, the LA Rebellion was this movement of African American filmmakers um, that, if I, if I'm not mistaken, they all went to UCLA in the '60s through the '80s, um, and they made a bunch of films together. It includes people like Charles Burnett and uh, Larry Clark. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Charles Burnett did a, a Killer of Sheep. Is that correct? Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, so, and my understanding is that one of the issues they had when they initially made the film was that they just didn't have a huge budget so when it came to post-production they um, didn't have the money for color correction and things like that mm-hmm. so this was the first time they really had an opportunity to go in and uh, and really finish it um, after principal photography but uh, Allison what did you think of the film? Um, yeah, so like you said, it's my first time seeing it, um, and and I also didn't know a lot about it when I started watching it. So 
um, it took me a little bit to orient to what kind of film it was going to be. But uh, once I realized it was going to be something poetic and a bit nonlinear, um, I really fell into it. Um, I was telling you before we started recording that, um, you know, it's put together more like a poem than like a, you know, a three act story. And I felt that the form that they chose for it was a really good match for what they were trying to uh, address in the film. Just like this intermingling of history and ancestry and memory and like memory being reformed in the modern era and, um, you know, different people from the different generations feeling a different way about these memories. Um, I felt like the form of the way the film was put together was a really good match for the telling of that story. And, you know, once I realized like what we're, what we're doing here with this time as we watch it, it was, it was fun to really fall into it. And the cinematography was really pretty. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think using the analogy of it being put together like a poem is probably the best way to describe not just the feel of it, but also kind of the structure because much like Allison, yeah, it took me a little bit to really get in the mindset of what the story and what how it was going to be presented and how it was going to be laid out. And once I got in there, it became more of like a lyrical exercise versus a narrative exercise. Yeah, I would say I think the first time I saw it, it was hard for me. Like I felt like I hadn't really seen it because I was it was so different than what anything that I was used to seeing in terms of its structure. Um, mm-hmm. So I still think that having seen it now three and a half times, it still feels kind of new to mm-hmm. me. Um, mm-hmm. But in, in terms of the structure, I, there's this quote, I think it's from an interview that Julie Dash did. And um, I mean, actually, I think talking about the structure is something that comes up a number of times. There's both, she talked about it in the, the it was like a book length interview she did with Bell Hooks that came out and the 90s around the time I think that the film came out and um, she talked about it again in this Rolling Stone interview where she says I was going against western story structure and initially she had written as a traditional a traditional three-act script um, but the more she learned the more she wanted to structure the story the structure of the story to be told from the ancient to the future um, uh. and I'm reading this quote now so uh, the, the motif is the culture of the sea islands of the south but it is not my family's story in fact, it's everyone's story. Every few generations, there's a massive movement towards global change. People migrate and people move away and people want different things. Um, but there's another quote, and I've got it somewhere, but I, I'll just paraphrase it, where she talks about wanting to mimic the storytelling style of people from the region, from like the Gola people, who I think have a more uh, tradition of oral storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um and it's not necessarily strictly linear and it's just it's not it doesn't fit into i think the the typical sort of um like in western stories everyone always brings up things like the hero's journey or a hero Mm -hmm. uh, and things like that it's like it's it's, this movie is not that no no which i think works in its favor too yeah definitely it definitely has that like sitting by a fire being told a story feel mm-hmm. i also right. felt and- like as i was watching it um which I, I read that rolling stone interview also that kind of shed some light on this for me as i was first watching it i was like you know i, I feel like there's a lot i'm missing because i don't have the foundational knowledge to be able to recognize different things i'm seeing here it kind of mm-hmm. reminded me of uh, a film that i really like um that's put together in a similar way called wings of desire um, it, but it's more about uh, modern German history. And like I studied that in college and it's put together like a poetry poem. So when I was watching that, I was able to get all the references of like what they're talking about and when they do mm-hmm. different, um, you know, when that, when that other movie would reference different little things with this visual imagery, I'd be getting it. But when I try to show it to people, they wouldn't be able to totally grasp mm-hmm. why I loved it so much because they didn't have all the back story on it. And I felt as I was watching this one, there was probably a lot of, Um, just background I was missing to really be able to fully connect with it Um, yeah out of of my three times watching it it's definitely one of those um, one of those films one of those stories that every time you watch it there's something new in the foreground Mm -hmm. (laughs) that you probably you know didn't even notice um, the the previous time you'd watched watched it 
Um, another thing about, you know, the story being told in a lyrical way is that there's so much movement in the film. Mm -hmm. as, as, you know, as far as all the different storylines and then you have, you know, um, Nana Fazant, who's like working in this circular motion. She's trying to return to, you know, or make everyone around her return and to and remember the past. And then um, while, while everyone else in some way is trying to move forward. So, and also you have um, the child, the unborn child who is present, you know, um, kind of representing like this, like belief in re reincarnation or like the past is, oh, with the um, Igbo, Igbo belief, which is the culture that I, that, I, that they were honoring um, in that film, the thought that the past is always with us and the, in the future in the future and the past are always with us. And I think that's like the somewhat the structure that the story kind of seems to rest on, which, you know, mm -hmm. gives it the really, really poetic nature. Um, like I write poetry, um, and the thing about it, well, one thing about some poetry, um, some some very, very lyrical poetry is that it has this quality sometimes of moving, just like that story, moving forward, but always also returning to the past. And that's the, that's what I get, you know, when I look at the, when I think about the narration of Daughters of the Dust um, and the different characters that represent you know, all, all of that movement. But, yeah. And I, I think the phrase uh, that you said, the the past and the future are always with us, is like a perfect like thesis statement for the film. It, like, summarizes everything that they're... Because people are... Especially, like, at the very end when she's, you know, um, talking about how we have to forget the past and move forward but everyone's fighting mm -hmm. to hold on to the past and yeah. not forget it it's it, so that past and the future with us is like a great summary for the feel and you know goal of the film yeah i, I like that character of yellow mary um she was talking a lot about how she just felt the need to keep moving forward and go to a new place a new place a new place like she'd already gone out and done kind of what the rest of the family is setting out to do. Mm -hmm. um, but then like where that had led her in the end was to come back home and to stay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she, she wants someone to know her name. Yeah. I also think, so did anybody, I know when we were rewatching it before we started, um, before we planned to record today, uh, Michael brought up the language that they were speaking, which mm -hmm. is this um, Gola Geechee, um, mm -hmm. which it, it's a it's a Creole language. Which um, you know, like, does everybody know what a Creole is? Should I should I elaborate on that? Go ahead and define it. Okay. Well, so like in language, there there are pigeons, and pigeons mm -hmm. is when you take two, are like two or more people from different cultures who speak different languages. And they're trying to communicate with each other. They'll develop a pigeon, and then when you get the next generation of people, they will pick that up and they'll create what's known as a creole. Mm. Um, and it's a combination. It's like a language is a combination of other languages. Um, I, th I think that's mostly accurate. Yeah, I didn't, yeah. Know, they, I didn't yeah. know one was born out of the other that way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's kind of like well, um, well, you got the what, but Afrikaans like mm -hmm. um, what. The Dutch and um, it's a mix mixture of Dutch and um, South a South African languages. Mm -hmm. I think it's mainly a mixture mixture of Dutch and Kosa, but that's that's a that's kind of a Creole, right? And so, and this film was inspired in part by the fact that Dash's father um, was Gola, and so she would hear him speak with this accent. Um, which is what inspired her to research the history of her family and where they came from. Um, and that research is what led her to making this film. And it was a long process. Like, I think she initially started writing it in 1975. Um, and they didn't actually start production until 1988. 
and in that like in that time she I don't know if they ever got if they actually were married but she had a relationship with Arthur Jaffa they had a child together um, they separated and then this this came from the the book where she's interviewed by Bell Hooks but once they actually started production um, mm-hmm. she actually got pregnant a second time but she knew that carrying the child to term would delay or either delay or completely um, how do I want to say it she it, it would it would halt the production of the film that she'd been working for at this point like 13 years to get made and so she decided to have an abortion wow yeah I don't know if, if that's like a good springboard for any other conversation or not. But just, <laughs> yeah, but it, well, yeah, it just came up in the, in the reading that. I thought that was something that was, might be worth yeah. talking about. <sighs> did, didn't um, did did one of the characters did Yellow Mary? I think no, her, I, her, her child, child died. Stupid. Yeah, her child yeah. died. It was uh, yeah. yeah 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 yeah. And then that's oh, how oh. she became a, a wet nurse. Who was yeah. that lady that was with Yellow Mary? That was that was lover. Trula. That was her. That was her lover. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. According okay. to, it's not explicit in the film, but no. Like this, this comes from reading the the book Daughters. I think it's just called Daughters yeah. of the Dust. Uh-huh. Um, mm-hmm. It's a making of book where yeah. Yeah. She's interviewed by Bell Hooks. And the. Okay. I mean, that's what it seemed like at first, but then I was like, well, I just don't feel like that's what's going on. Maybe I missed something, but, um, okay, I'm glad to clear that up. Um, yeah, and her, and Yellow Mary's story is that, I we're kind of getting to the, the actual story now, but, um, Yellow Mary's, you know, this figure that's ostracized by her family, she had, so she gets pregnant and uh, her baby is stillborn, but then she gets hired by this family to become a wet nurse. Mm-hmm. And she's then my understanding is she is then raped by the the man who has hired her to be a wet nurse. Mm-hmm. Um, and the key I, to understanding that is the use of the word ruined. Which, yeah. Yeah. Um, and then so in order to get out of that situation, she she says she she stopped milking. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't. It seems like there was something more to it than just. Well, from what I understand, um, it ruined. Um, basically, when when a woman is ruined, then she can't produce children anymore. Mm. Um, it's it's uh is when a woman has been sexually abused so badly, and I'm you know till um, yeah, child child reproduction is not possible, or something has happened. Um, and sometimes it's abuse and sometimes it's something else, but, um, reproduction is not possible. So that's what the term ruined is about. The, the problematic thing is that in some cultures, um, and it seems like, you know, that particular culture is one of them. Women who were ruined were looked at as, um, they were looked down upon, you know, by, by other women and men, you know, in their in their own culture so yeah so i think that that was part of um the ostracization of yellow, yellow mary was yeah that seems like what was going on now that you're explaining it yeah and then of course the central conflict of the story is the narrator the narrator um well there's nana and the, the unborn child the right? unborn child i don't know if does the unborn child have a name you know, Never. I don't know. So I turned on the subtitles, which is how I discovered it was an unborn child speaking. <laughs> <laughs> and it always just said unborn child, yeah, unborn child. It, yeah, I think that, um, what was I about to say? Um, the unborn child, yeah, and I, I don't know if she's given a name, but also if the first time I watched it, I had to do subtitles as well. Um, it was Eula was her mom, right? Yes, Eula was so, her mom. Okay. Oh, yeah. She was so, a central character. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Well, what I was gonna say is that Eula has been raped. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And her father or her husband, Eula's husband, wants to know who did it, and she won't tell him. And this is nothing. I don't remember if this is explicitly stated in the film, but she has been raped by a white man. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. I felt like I gathered that. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, then, um, yeah, Yellow Mary's talking about that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so then she doesn't want to tell who did it because she's afraid that her husband might go and try to um, retaliate. Get revenge. Yeah. And, right. and then he would end, end up lynched. So, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, she says, like, if I tell you, nothing good would come of it. Mm-hmm. I've got in my hand, I haven't read this, there's the Daughters of the Dust novel that Julie Dash wrote that's a sequel to the mm-hmm. movie. Oh, okay. I, I, I feel like she must be a character in this. So I thought of that, I, I, I heard, they mentioned that Rolling Stone article that she wrote like a full-length novel after the movie. Mm-hmm. And I yeah. thought of that whenever you said that she decided to sacrifice her pregnancy to finish the film, or, I mean, that's what it sounded like she said. Um... It seems like this film, given how long she worked on it up to pre-production and how much she went through to get it out into the world, which I'm sure you can share more details on, and then to go on to write a novel about it. I mean, that's like a that's like the work. work of your life. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. I so I see why it would be that prominent in her in her you know value system. Well, she had a lot. It sounded like she had a lot of trouble, um, you know, getting it released and. I just read a little bit of it, but just like her premiere at Sundance and how it was received. Mm-hmm. The Sundance premiere, I don't have any background on that. Do you, what, what did you What did you read about Sundance? So I I was reading quickly because I was just trying to orient myself to some of the backstory on the film. But it sounds like she got to premiere it at Sundance. It won an award for cinematography, but overall, the takeaway was like, yeah, it was good, but it's just like inaccessible. Um, yeah. And I think that was, like, really disappointing, um, it sounds like. Um, and she mm-hmm. had to go through a lot to get it screened in a theatrical release after that. Like, it was, mm-hmm. like, years later that she got to have a theatrical release. And this article said that... Actually, I was kind of surprised by this. Maybe y'all can confirm. I What I understood the article said was that she was the first African-American female director to have a theater- yeah. general theatrical yes. release. Yeah, yes, she was. And, and I was in the 90s. Yeah, um, that's, that's crazy to me. <laughs> yeah, I was surprised by that. I mean, I guess it doesn't seem, you know, I guess mm-hmm. it sounds about right in a lot of ways, but I was surprised that it was that was happening so late. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's like is that's that's sort of a travesty. Um, like I think so. She was the first African American woman, the first uh, black woman. Period. I think they have a white theatrical release was a uh, Eula Palsy. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right. But she's a, a South African director, and she did um, a film called Sugarcane Alley. And, th- and this was only this was in the '80s, so this was not that long, you know, mm-hmm. um, before. Um, but yeah, and, and I think maybe in some ways it was easier for an international director than a, an African American woman to get their film made and released. Yeah, um, and she had said in this article that um, Dash that she was thinking of it as thinking of it as a foreign film especially yes. like especially when white americans watch it that it would be seen as a foreign film it's like not made for you it's not made to explain things for you it's made for like a different uh cultural population perspective. yeah oh. different population um and and that the film the people that finally released it the ones who have their names on the opening credits that i can't remember um were was a production company a distribution company that focuses on foreign foreign films for an American audience. Um, so in a way, that's how she was conceiving of it and how it ultimately... Actually, I couldn't tell if that's how she was originally conceiving of it and it, how it ultimately found distribution or if that wow. was the niche it ended up finding. You know, like, okay, well, it'll work as a foreign film. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, I think... Um, I mean, again, going back to the Bell Hooks book, like, her referencing it sort of as a foreign film goes back at least 20, 20 plus years. And, mm-hmm. and But like to, to what you're saying, I don't know if that happened after sort of her experience um, at Cannes or if that was something that, that um, she always envisioned. I do think that as she was writing it, once she made the decision to abandon any sort of traditional act structure, um, if you were looking for something else as a template, you know, you might think of like, well, foreign films are a little more experimental. You can do different types of things. Mm-hmm. You know, you not have to hold into a structure. Um, and then, it, like, and she said that she was pulling from storytelling traditions of, like, the, the Gullah people 
Um, and then I guess at that point, if you're saying you're going to just structure your film as though it were adhering to the structure of these people from Central and South Africa, mm-hmm. then then at that point, then in your mind maybe it does become more of a foreign film. Right. Mm-hmm. But yeah, and I, and I think, so to go back to your point, though, or, or sort of to piggyback off what you were saying about the difficulty of forgetting it in theaters at all, I read an article last year around the, re- the re-release where it was saying that she still had trouble finding an agent. Oh, yeah. Um, mm. So, you know, you're talking about someone who's been making films since the 70s, um, is very influential, um, is name-checked by everyone from Beyonce to uh, um, Solange. Mm-hmm. Um, and like still can't get an agent. And she's been working too. I think she's been teaching and making some made for TV things. And, um, yeah. So it's not like she's not working, but just like getting an agent to make like a studio picture, getting funding, it just seems like it's still an uphill battle. Yeah, but I feel like we've had this conversation before, maybe when it comes to women directors and how I don't know if it was something that we screened that brought it up or if it's just another conversation that I was having at some point. But if you just look at the filmography of um, women directors, they're just compared to their male counterparts, they're just not typically don't have as large a filmography. And it just seems like it's harder to get funding and distribution. A, I think projects. we might have talked about it with Meek's cutoff. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I and it's I still. S- oh, go ahead. No, 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 you go ahead. Well, something I see happening with a lot of my friends that are filmmakers that have made a bit of a name for themselves, mm-hmm. and so far most of the people I've seen go through this are women. I can't tell if it's because they're women or maybe this is just the experience of any filmmakers right now. But you get a film out there, it does really good in the festivals, you get a bunch of awards, you're like the darling for a season, you're on 20 new faces of you know indie cinema, you win the, uh, you know... Cinema Eye Honors Award, you get Independent Spirit Award, like you show, you know, you have a theatrical release, like all this stuff, mm-hmm. and then you make your next film and no one cares about you at all. Um, like you, you know, you can't even get it into festivals that like one, you know, one film ago were, you know, all about you. And what I see happen too is like these festivals and like these outlets for indie filmmakers, it's, it's kind of like they're using them. They're like, oh, great, you fulfilled this niche and you've done this thing that looks good when we talk about it and we really need to write an article about someone and we need someone to give an award and especially if you're a woman or especially if you're a woman of color, like, that makes us look good, so let's give Mm -hmm. that to you. But next time around, we might have someone else that fills that niche, so we don't need you anymore. Um, And and it's like there's no guarantee if you make one successful film that anyone will care about you the next time around. And... Um, it's re- and, and that includes getting funding to make your next film. Like you still have to prove yourself that that uh, that your that your idea is a good idea and that you're a capable director of pulling it off, even though you just proved it. Um, so I, I've seen a lot of filmmakers facing that uphill battle, especially women. Uh, do you think that is? Um, do you think that? Distribution. Or, well, I guess first, are we talking about features or shorts? I'm talking about features right now. Okay. Shorts is a bit more of a crapshoot. Yeah. Yeah. So, do you think that that has anything to do with distribution, or, um, I know we're we're kind of getting off of the topic of dollars of the dust, but I know like we can. There's been a lot of talk about Netflix and their role in them distributing films and mm-hmm. whether or not it's um sort of like whether or not films should go straight to streaming or they should be filmed on a well, screen first or the people that I know that are, you know, doing this as their career and, mm-hmm. and their agents and con, uh, distributors talk of Netflix and streaming services, especially the ones that you don't pay individually for each film on mm-hmm. is yeah. kind of the end of the line. Like okay. you do everything you can and then your movie goes on Netflix and okay. that's where it stops. That's where you don't make money anymore. Now I'm talking about, ones that are produced by Netflix. I'm sure that's a much different setup. Yeah, because... Yeah. I watch my friends' films do, like, you know, theatrical... First, they do the film festival circuit. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if they do well there, they'll get 
bought to either play on TV um, or have a theatrical release. Um, usually in still more indie theaters, like, you know, like here would be the Alamo Draft House or there it would be, uh, well, it would have been Market Street Cinema. I don't know, does the Riverdale Cinema play that kind of stuff? Yeah, well, they have a few screens that I think are usually reserved for indie films. Yeah, so you get a theatrical release that way. And then after that, you do, like, iTunes and HBO, limited release. And then and then maybe there's a step between that, and then you go to Netflix. Um, and that's where your movie kind of dies, is how they talk about it. Um, it does. In a business sense. Um, but it was funny because, like, my friend that... This is all really going on tangent. My friend that got her film on Netflix felt the way I would feel if my film was on Netflix. Like, oh my god, are we going to be on Netflix? Um, <laughs> and they were like, yeah, in a couple of years after it's gone through every other track it can go through. But maybe that's because well, it's set up to not. I'm not wondering though, do do you see a possibly a trend of people just deciding like they're going to skip all the rigmarole and just go to an outlet like outlet like Netflix? Uh, I don't know. I don't know even how that works. I haven't seen anybody just go directly there. Because it, it seems like, you know, from what you're saying, um, this is a this is a pattern that people have been told they should do. Yeah. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and and there's, you know, even even and I don't know how much they get paid to have their films on Netflix, but um the thing about it is is that some people might just decide, okay, um, I'd rather not go through trying to be a film festival do- darling. I'd rather not go go through trying to go through the traditional route and just say, okay, I know where my film can be seen. Not saying that this is the best thing to do, but yeah. I know where my film can be seen. So why don't I just go to Netflix or you know some other outlet yeah. where I know that, you know, my work will be seen and there'll be a home for it and then just move on to making other work that, you know, (laughs) yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I feel that. I feel like halfway through film school, I was like, wait a second, why do we care about these festivals again? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Because it's like really expensive to like apply to all of them and then like you get rejected and it's like a business thing. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's what it really comes down to is you're selling yourself. That's, yeah. you're, you're getting into festivals so you can say, hey, look, I made it to festivals so you can give me money to do more things. Uh, yeah, so going straight to Netflix while something like that or putting it on YouTube or anything like that can work to get, like, the most eyes on it. It's Maybe. not going to work to get you funding for the next project yeah presumably Mm -hmm. well well so now i'm sorry about i'm sorry uh, regarding julie dash go ahead Mm -hmm. oh the well the last thing that i heard about her was that i just saw an article um coincidentally last week um i think on facebook saying that um what is that show she she she's going to be a guest director on on one of the shows on own. Oh, is it Queen Sugar? Queen Sugar. Yeah. Queen Sugar. So, yeah. But go ahead, Sean. I'm sorry. Oh, well, I, I will. Uh, it's probably better to get back to Julie Dash, but I was just going to say that the Netflix thing in festivals is sort of like. So, when Netflix buys your movie, they own it outright. You don't get residuals. You don't get, you know, royalties or anything like that. They just own it and they have the streaming. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and the, from the standpoint of the film critic community, the critique of Netflix is that they don't have a good strategy for promoting their films. Mm-hmm. So there, mm-hmm. there are films that they produce with their own money and there are films that they buy. And one of the films that they bought recently is called I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore and it won an award yeah. at Sundance. Mm-hmm. Um, but the like the critique was like, so they bought it at Sundance, it went on to Netflix a few weeks later um, and then it just got buried by other stuff and they just wow. don't have to promote it, right? Okay. So on the one hand, it's good because you're a filmmaker. You wanna you wanna sell your film and recoup your cost, um, and, so, and certainly the producers do as well. But you also want people to see it, and so the argument is that Netflix might not be the best way to do that. Um, the counter argument is that is it really that much better to get a distribution deal and then have it screen in theaters in New York and LA for a couple weeks, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, 
and then like it never gets to smaller markets and then it never it never doesn't really travel internationally and then you have to wait a couple of years before people can actually see it at home on home video so yeah it's a depressing business <laughs> hey i uh i just i i had a thought i meant to bring up earlier that yes. hit me again so it's just back to the idea of julie dash uh eventually distributing this film as a foreign film. Um, I was just wondering, like, if that is something she ended up having to do because it wasn't a film that was made specifically to explain things to a white audience. Yeah, that's what I was wondering, too. Like, um, what, like maybe, did they decide on the foreign film, number one, because um, even though the, the film is a Creole um, that's, you know, that... Uh, that is here in the United States. Um, the the film does not have doesn't have any white characters in it. Um, no. no white characters only mentioned, and also um, the language is somewhat you know difficult you know for for you know people who are not from um, the Gullah or Geechee um, region to understand. And I I just and this is something about. Um, black African American films. Um, mm-hmm. The thing about it is, a lot of times they are characterized as something that they are not, so that they can appeal to a white audience or yeah. a mainstream audience, such as like movies that are clearly dramas, like Soul Food. You know, um, is probably to me the best example. It's clearly a drama, but was marketed as a comedy. Mm. Now it has funny uh, parts in it, but it's not a comedy. It's a drama. And that often happens with black films, especially in the 90s. I remember reading um, the little HBO catalog and every mm-hmm. black film was listed as a comedy. And I'm like, I'm thinking, you know, as a teenager, <laughs> well, maybe I was wrong. Maybe it is a comedy. But <laughs> later on, I'm like, no. No, it was not a comedy. It was a drama, and that. But black movies are marketed as most of the time comedy, and in that particular, um, in this particular instance, as a as a foreign film, so that you know, so that a white audience can understand. Okay, this is something a little different from what you may be used to, yeah. or from this is something different from the mainstream. Um, yeah, so. And she said that she, in that article, that Rolling Stone article, she said she specifically wanted to make a film for African-Americans. And that yeah. was like specifically not doing what a lot of uh, movies about this time period would do, which is try to explain things to a white, white audience. Now, her counterparts, like Charles Burnett, Killer of Sheep, um, it is labeled as a drama. Um, he uses the same... Um, I wouldn't necessarily say the same technique. The story, the narrative is not a linear narrative. It's mm-hmm. extremely poetic as well. However, it take it takes place, I believe, in Watts, um, in California. So it doesn't. The language is easy is mm-hmm. easy to understand. The there there's no like there's no. You know, you don't feel like you're listening to people from another country and they're speaking like a somewhat different accent. Um, but, you know, like I said, it takes place in Watts. It's not marketed as a foreign film. Yeah. You know what it I mean? It is now? Oh, it's, it's not. not. It's oh, not. Yeah. Yeah. It's not marketed as any in as anything other than but, but what, you know, other than what it is. So, yeah, I, I but I still think it's interesting that that particular film, like you said, she eventually chose to, um, or someone eventually chose to label it as a foreign film because, you know, the cast is African-American um, and they have accents somewhat mm-hmm. different than the, the than the typical American accents. Um, you know, I don't think a film in New Orleans <laughs> Um, would have been marketed as a foreign film, you know, but I don't know. Yeah. I assume, Kendra, that you've seen Killer Sheep, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it was, it was actually, it was part of the Argentine Times film series before we were involved. I think it was the mm-hmm. only film by a black director that they had screened before. But yeah, it was one of the, the 
rare films that they showed before we were involved that was sort of that was really truly different and uh-huh. um it's unique i think but it's also narratively it almost i haven't seen it in a long time but it reminds me of like one of those early uh like uh jim jarmusch films mm, okay what's what's the one yeah yes yeah but like lots of different things happen and there's a very loose narrative thread yeah. it doesn't yeah mm-hmm that's one of my dad's favorite films. I've never seen it, but he said that Which he one? stumbled. Killer Sheep. Killer Sheep. He said he stumbled across mm. it on TV, like late night mm. one time. You know, just flipping channels and stopped on it, and you know, watched the whole thing. And that's what he always cites as his favorite film. Wow. Yeah, I know. I can't believe I haven't watched it even after that. So it's a really beautiful film. <laughs> so let's see. Let's talk about food. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, <laughs> like so food. much food. There's so yeah. much food in this movie. Luscious um, food. Well, they yeah, it is trend. luscious. Oh my gosh, it is, it is. Um, what were you about to say, Deshaun? I don't want to interrupt. Um, I, I, I well, I just wanted to kind of kick it off, but I was gonna say that when we were watching it, Michael wondered if like sort of potlucks yeah so like i was we were watching it and like when she's like cutting uh, uh, the okra and like putting the ends on the kids heads and you know everyone's kind of pitching in and helping and doing different things it still felt very familiar and i wasn't sure if that is a like across the nation kind of like familiar thing or if that's like more a southern like, oh, I'm helping my grandmother, you know, snap peas mm. and things like that. So I wasn't sure if that was because this is also takes place in the southern region and that's where we're, we are. So it's, oh, mm-hmm. this is what I know. This is familiar. Or if it was a larger aspect that is part of everyone's, you know, family. Yeah. And I mean, I, and I think it's kind of a universal thing. Um, I think food is always a big part of every culture. And I think it was something that brings people together, especially um, when this film takes place in 1902. I think it's mm-hmm. it's a huge part of every of everyone's everyday lives and experiences. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, but the think... cu- cuisine is very like yeah. making gumbo is very southern and familiar. Yeah. Um. Well, I I think okra. If I might be wrong. I want to look it up really quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know where okra has the origins. Let's see. Yeah, it's 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 West African in origin, and that was mm-hmm. like the uh, yeah that was the um, important thing. Um, yeah, um, about okra in that particular film, there there were a few things that were like I think that were um, trans were supposed to be you know in inter- not not just interpreted but kind of understood. That um, that it was it originated in West Africa where the Igbo people came from because like the island was Igbo Island and all of that. I do as far as the the notion of potlucks though, I do think that there was that was or I interpreted it, interpreted it as um, Julie Dash kind of saying there's something lost in that tradition once the migration happens Mm. like Mm -hmm. i know you know from my experience and living in different places people do potlucks everywhere people you know prepare food at their own homes and take it to a central location where whether it's the mom's house or one you know aunt's house or you know some maternal or paternal you know head of the family but i think with that particular um, with with that particular fest, fest, festivity or that um, home leaving celebration because that's what it was it was a home leaving celebration or right. a goodbye they were also saying goodbye to the people being in one spot and mm-hmm. preparing the food all together and you know these little celebrations that they were doing with the food um, in my in my experiences. Um, I think that that might be lost. I know, like I said, I know people do potlucks where people mm-hmm. come come together and they bring food from their own houses. But 
it's not a daily thing. And it seems like that may have been more of a somewhat of, you know, of a regular weekly or daily thing where they all got together and went through these rituals of preparing the food. Um, And I think that was, you know, Julie Dash's, um, you know, that was a very nostalgic take on that particular tradition. And part of what Nana Pazant was trying to hold on to, you know, as she saw her children leaving. I'm also sad for Nana Pazant. <laughs> also, like, I was wondering, I guess at the very end, more people stayed than I realized were going to stay. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but I was really worried about her, like, what's going to happen to her after all these people leave? Like, she's pretty yeah. cool. Like, there's a lot of, you know, physical work that has to be done to keep mm-hmm. up with life in that setting. And I felt worried about her. Yeah, but I think she's strong. She's going to be okay. Um, I'm just thinking of all the things we haven't, like, you were talking about the okra, Michael, and I remember that, yeah, there's a scene, that in that scene, it reminds me that um, the use of nicknames. Yeah, they said that yeah. like a big thing. everyone has multiple mm-hmm. nicknames. Mm-hmm. Right. And uh, have we even talked about, like, this one of the central conflicts of this movie being is the idea of the past clashing with uh, the present and how, mm-hmm. so like the fact that like why they want to leave the island or some parts of the family want to leave the island or like the, the faith that none of present holds on to. Yeah. Uh, the conflict yeah. with like Christianity. Um, yeah. There's so many things going on here. I mean, she yeah. goes back, like repeats multiple times about, you know, and it wasn't Igbo. I'm sorry, it's Ibu Island, but go ahead. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say, she talks multiple times about being connected to the earth and being, you know, it's as long as there's soil for her to be on. And, like, it's it's talking about roots and herbs. And it's very all about the earth and being connected to your land versus mm-hmm. Christianity. It's heavens in the, in the sky. It's about this ethereal plane of existence you know so they're very clashing ideas and it it presents christianity as this modernization is is this Mm -hmm. um tool or yeah this this transition tool for modernization and the 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 religion that nana pazant holds on to the evil religion is something that's ancient and they don't necessarily. Well, there is a character who looks at it as wicked. Um, the the who who is it? The yeah. uh, the cousin of um, Hagar. Yellow Mary. What's her name? Hagar. Is it Hagar is the lady, the Baptist lady. Uh, yeah. Like. Yeah. I remember. I can't remember if that was Hagar or the lady with the big hair that was pulled back. It was Hagar. Um, Viola. Oh, that's Viola. Viola. Viola is her name. Viola is the one who decides, you know, she, you know, she wants, she's very, very, and, and yeah, I know Hagar as well, but Viola is, to me, it was one point in that movie where I think they were trying to, they were attempting to get her into a picture. Um, God, I, I don't want to talk about it because I, I'm the the actual scene kind of leaves my mind but she was to me the representation of everything that they were striving to be mm-hmm. or that Hagar to me was striving to be and then Nana Pazant of course was a representation of all that they were attempting to leave but you know the the clash to me, well, I that that was to me that was the most visceral clash was the clash between the two religions, yeah. um, because, you know, the as far as slavery was concerned and um, assimilation and everything, and it's it, 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 it wasn't even so much as assimilation. I'm I'm still shocked actually that that group of people held on to as much as they did mm-hmm. <laughs> um after you know after all the erasure and everything i'm i when i when i saw Daughter, daughters of the dust that was the first thing that was my first time just really seeing how much of you know a west how how much you know 
descendants of slaves had held on to West African traditions and religions because um, from my experience and from, you know, everything that I that I seen before then, there was a complete erasure and a demonization of West African religions. So that that was to me, that was the most um, visceral conflict was, you know, that you have this old woman who is unashamed <laughs> and, you know, to fight for these traditions that she really, really wants her children to hold on to and how they are so willing to give it up. Mm-hmm. And to me, that that was the tragedy. That was part of the tragedy of it. Um, yeah, that was part of that. That was really part. Of, if there there was a tragedy in that story, that that was that the that the children were so willing to forget. Not yeah. you know convert if you choose. You know that that's you know that's fine. But the willingness you know at that point to forget something that your grandmother is you know for good reason is attempting to you to hold on to. That was the tra- that to me that was the most tr- one of the most the most tragic part of the conflict anyway. Um, yeah. Yeah, and especially when you think about what a lot of them are heading to, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, they feel excited, like there's new opportunity and stuff, but also a lot of what they're going to head to is struggle and, like, a new a new reformulation of oppression, and it's, it's not... I don't know. I just... You think about them going off to the mainland to... It seems like they're thinking of it as seeking their fortune. But, yeah. I mean, and, be, and it's honestly, not be so nice. I mean, they even say that slavery's only been uh, abolished for fifty years at this point. Nineteen oh two. So, does anyone have any last thoughts that they want to share uh, before we wrap it up? Oh, I just one more note that I had of things that stood out to me was also just the way that time passes in this film. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's it was supposed to be like the day or maybe the couple of days before they left. Um, but, you know, you watch, like, they prepare that meal, like, over the course of a lot of the movie. Mm-hmm. And you're circling in into that action and out of that action. And, um, you know, like, one, one activity takes course over the whole day. And I, I really, I guess I really liked also the way that was set up. And I felt like it was a good match for the culture that was being portrayed. Um, and it, it reminded me of uh, when I was in Peace Corps in Mongolia. Um, obviously, like, a different part of the world, but a similar structure in terms of intergenerational family living together and over the course of the whole day preparing big meals together for the for the whole Mm -hmm. family and everyone having their parts in that way and just the way the time played out reminded me of those days i spent uh with families there just watching the food get prepared and doing my little part and then leaving and coming Mm -hmm. and all that um yeah i just thought it was a really nice experiential approach to showing what that feels like Kendris? My fi- my final thoughts. I'm so glad, even though I'm not like uh, I'm not I'm not a member of the Beehive. <laughs> I was <laughs> I was really glad to see that um, the directors or cinema- cinematographer for Beyonce's Lemonade decided to in- include um, I would call them reappropriations of mm. um, the Daughters of the Dust and Lemonade because I think it's such an important film. Um, for American culture, and there's so there there's so much in it that I'm I'm even I'm glad that it's for for whatever reason it's being revisited mm-hmm. um, because it's such a beautiful film. Uh, Michael, uh, yeah, I would I would say definitely knowing ahead of time what the like structure and, and feel that the movie will benefit you not trying to just instantly go all right what's the plot what's happening who's this you know just let it slowly unfold in front of you everything slowly becomes apparent and you don't need to rush the story because it's not a story that needs no you know that's about you know getting to the end um but also the idea of re because i was watching it a little bit at the beginning when we were recording and even just that, like rewatching it, it's like it's everything's a little bit more clear, and you knowing <laughs> the end really helps inform the beginning. So either watching it 
you know, more than once or with someone who's seen it before, I think kind of really adds more to it and is beneficial for your viewing. Are we doing um, recommendations? Um, do you have one? Well, I just thought of one while I was watching Daughters of the Dust. Um, okay. it, a, a movie it reminded me of that I haven't really ever heard anyone talk about, except for Ty was, my boyfriend loves this movie. He finally got me to watch it um, after talking about it for years. Um, I Am Cuba. Actually, mm. I have to look up the director's name. It's similar. It's like a bunch of vignettes um, of Cuba in, I want to say the 60s. Um, let me see. Um and it's also just got this really poetic... 1964. Uh, po- yeah, this really poetic storytelling way. It's, like, really moving. Just like little vignettes, like, you'll follow, like, a fruit salesman on the street in the city, or you'll go to, like, a sugarcane farmer, like, out in the countryside. And um, it's, it, was, it was shot by a... Uh, like a Soviet filmmaker, and it was it, it, it's made for an audience, a non-Cuban audience. Like I think you watch it, and it's like it's kind of trying to showcase Cuban life and Cuban culture, but it's similarly anthropological um, mm. and just like really moving poetic storytelling. So I feel like if someone who likes Daughters of the Dust would really enjoy I Am Cuba. Doesn't that movie have some really great cinematography of like cameras? Like it's craning across the top of buildings. Yes. Yeah. And I'm not a cinematography nerd at all. Like I'll notice it. You know, I, I can talk about it if I need to, but it's not really what stands out to me in movies. But with I'm Cuba, I'm like, whoa! How did they do that? Especially <laughs> given the time that they're shooting it. Like really creative camera work. Mm-hmm. Um, that I feel like, uh, yeah, you don't have to be really into camera work to appreciate the the impact of what they've done. Kendris, do you have any recommendations? As far as movie recommendations, no, I'm I'm not a movie buff. I do have a thought though. Um, I don't know for anybody who like does write narrative. Mm-hmm. I I think that that story is one of the things that I like about Daughters of the Dust is that it not only tells the story of the people who leave, it also tells the story of the people who stayed. Mm-hmm. And why they stayed, and a lot of times, like we were saying earlier, um, the Western narrative relies on the hero's journey, and um, the you know the protagonists are the main character leaving home and then you know going returning, you know for you know in in in, in restoring the bo- their boon or what they learned upon their home, and but I I think that. It would be nice. It is great when um, storytellers focus on the characters who stay, like Nana Pazant, and also the character I can't think of her name right now, who was supposed to leave the mainland and she stayed because she fell in love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. Is it uh, is it Julian the Last Child or Saint Julian the Last Child? Is that the Native American character's <laughs> name? Yeah, last child was his name. His last name. Yeah. Hey, it's Hagar's daughter who decides to stay for love, though. Uh, yeah. Her name is Ayana. Yeah. Ayana. That was cool. He came and swept yeah. her away. Yeah. <laughs> unexpected. I was like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> child of the Cherokee Nation. Yes. Um. Let's see, Michael. Do you have a recommendation? Uh, no, I haven't had a chance to really watch much of anything lately, so I do not. Well, Happening. What you, well, what you can do, is just record a recommendation later. Okay. <laughs> we'll we'll pretend that we recorded it tonight. Um, I did want to ask. Prepared this time. Uh-huh. They sprung okay. it on me at the end of the last podcast. <laughs> I did want to ask you to did I saw that there was a she also wrote a sequel novel. To this, yeah, that yeah, takes yeah. About like well, twenty years later in Harlem. Uh, well, oh. it takes place on the island. It takes place both on the island and in Harlem. It's a, oh, cool. it's a book. Yeah, so it's a book of short stories. Okay. Um, and so I think I think the way it's structured is each chapter is a, is a different story that documents the family going forward. Is it raining there, Allison? Yeah, it just started pouring. Can you hear it? Yeah. Beautiful. It... I'm actually really looking forward to unplugging and going outside. Or not going outside, but opening the door to look at it. Mm. Well... Thanks, thanks everybody for recording. Thank uh, you for thanks, having me. Yeah, thank yeah, you. Yeah, it was fun. It's nice to meet you, Kendris. Nice to meet you, Allison. I just add you on Facebook. <laughs> I just accepted you. <laughs> All right. Oh wow! Look at that. 
We're making friends. We're, yeah. we're, we're making connections and building relationships right here. That's what it's all about. And so, on the 19th day of August, 1902, they left these islands and set out for the north, having said farewell, perhaps never to see us again. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed recording it. Be sure to go to filmquotesfilm.com and like us on our Facebook page where you can stay up to date and get information about upcoming screenings and new podcast episodes. Rate us and leave comments on iTunes. And you can also send feedback, questions, or comments about this or any film that we've screened previously to filmquotesfilm at gmail.com. Thanks again to the Arkansas Times, Riverdale 10 VIP Cinema, and special guest Kendris Jones. And remember that our screenings take place on the third Tuesday of every month at the Riverdale 10 VIP Cinema. Until next time, this is Film Quotes Film. <laughs>